This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the books, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in the somewhat noisy area of Brooklyn, New York this morning. (laughs) I am the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. And as always, we are pleased to remind people that the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force, which we hope to accomplish through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. So Jethro, how are you this morning? Well, happy Monday, Fred. It is good to be here. (laughs) That's right. And just Being glad I'm not Chris Rock right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) No kidding. Well, you know, when you you have a big mouth, sometimes the big mouth gets slapped, I think is the moral of that lesson. I do think that is true, and we will need to calendar a show on role modeling by adults for children. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I did... 
just a quick aside, since we're obviously we're doing this immediately post uh, 2022 Oscars, for those of you who want a timestamp on yeah. this show. <laughs> there it is. But, <laughs> there it is. But let me tell you that it was just kind of amusing that the LAPD actually felt that it was necessary to put out a statement that the comedian had chosen not to press charges. And there were all of these jokes on Twitter about, you know, well, could they not find any witnesses? (laughs) (laughs) Only like 200 million people around the world. Anyway, putting that aside, um, it's kind of a bummer when even the Oscars get a little bit too violent for our kids. Yeah, no kidding. But be that as it may, we're going to be talking today. Hey, hold on a sec. We need to address something here. Because this is Uh-oh. right up your alley. So if you watched the Oscars here in the States or saw something oh, yeah, from the exactly. Oscars in the States, then you missed a whole key piece of that interaction. But you if you watched did. in Japan or Australia or some other countries around the world, they did not have a mute button that stopped the oh. program. And so you could go watch the unedited version that other audiences around the world got of what actually happened which you know and you're referring to the moment when will smith shouted at chris rock and said you keep my wife's name out of your expletive yes and he was mic'd up pretty well for that moment which is a little surprising also well actually he said it loudly enough he didn't need to be mic'd up they they've got microphones all over that place so yeah they were going to pick that up well no matter what Now, here's an interesting thing, though. I've done live television, and hot mics are a big issue. So there's a lot of tension around whether or not a mic is turned on in a place where it shouldn't be turned on. And to me, I find that really fascinating because there is not – having the audience mic'd like that does not seem like the – the approach that you would typically take because you don't want to hear side conversations or right, extra right, loud right. laughter or somebody clapping inappropriately or, or somebody saying something inappropriate at a, at a time when they shouldn't be saying something. So I'm a little surprised that, that there was even a mic that could pick them up, that there wasn't somebody making that's, sure that that didn't happen. Well, and that, that's interesting because that's your kind of technical expertise coming through because you understand that stuff a lot right. better than I do. Um, you know, and then, by the way, that wasn't the only hot mic moment of the night because you, you may have seen the news about Lady Gaga bending down to, you know, an ailing Liza Minnelli who is having trouble reading her part of the presentation and saying to her, I got you, you mm. know, and it was a very heartwarming moment, but it was obviously not scripted mm-hmm. definitely a little bit on the hot mic side but you know less controversial sure. shall we say <laughs> what will smith said but you i think you raise a really good point and we've we've discussed this on various shows about the editorial choices that mm-hmm. are made by media companies right and abc is an old school media company and so it's an interesting question why did they not air that why did they cut off the video broadcast as abruptly as they did um yeah that's an interesting question are they protecting the audience are they protecting will smith are they protecting themselves all of these different things come into play yeah um you know and you know, when you're dealing with a star of the magnitude of will smith 
there's a organizational imperative to keep him from getting too pissed off, mm-hmm. which of course the folks in Japan and Australia could, you know, give him a fig about. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I'm not sure what the, uh, you know, I know that we have FCC rules, which limit what kinds of languages are allowed or what kind of language is allowed to be used on TV. And so they have mute buttons so they don't get fined, but you know, I've watched and delays, right? And delays, right? Delays built in so that you can't, so that you can do something before it gets to that point. But um, I've <laughs> I've been watching sports games just this year and and heard very loud expletives like what Will Smith used um, that people didn't realize were were being said. And you know, yeah. you can't control for all of that, but that's that's a much different thing than an audience mic being turned on as will smith was saying that i just i find that really peculiar and interesting because you really don't want the audience mics to be hot unless (laughs) there's a very specific reason for them to be hot i think that's a a great point and the last two things i'll say real quickly before we move into our topic is number one there was a really funny response about people going around the world to look for un censored clips Uh and somebody said basically you're watching people on twitter look at the foreign video like they're analyzing the zapruder film from (laughs) the kennedy assassin like finding that clip and the last thing i'll add is that if people are interested in these issues which as i said we've discussed they should pick up a copy of the decency wars on amazon which starts with perhaps the most famous accidental bit of indecency janet jackson and justin timberlake at the 2004 super bowl and that entire book is about this relationship between what is broadcast and what is appropriate and decent in american society so yeah book plug of the morning there we go (laughs) super nerdy stuff but let's get into more nerdy stuff and talk about our topic so why don't you introduce it today Sure, this is the total nerd fest today, and I apologize to those, but this is important nerddom, so I really, really hope people will pay attention. Our topic for today is ransomware, and the basic concept here is understanding what ransomware is, understanding where it comes from, the implications, the harm that it is actively doing in schools, and how schools should respond to specifically ransomware for our conversation, but cybersecurity breaches in general. And as always, there's a bunch of material in the show notes that I would urge people to take a look at. There are some uh, specific news reports regarding ransomware attacks. There's a lot of good information about the fact that both the feds and various states are dumping a pile of money into this problem. So schools should really be aggressive about going out and getting that money and upgrading, but we'll get to that. So obviously the first question for an ex-school principal <laughs> is, did you ever have to deal with this? Uh, thankfully, no. I'm I, honestly kind of shocked that I didn't because especially in 2019, 2020, there was a lot of it going on and I heard mm-hmm. numerous reports about it. And that was my last year being a school principal. And I think it's just increased since then. Um, I think... I think you mentioned that there were like seven billion dollars in damage or in ransoms paid in 2021. Did I get that figure right? Well, actually, that figure, the seven billion, I have to confess, is cyber attacks broadly. 
Gotcha. There's okay. a lot of de- there's a lot of debate about what percentage is specifically attributable to ransomware. And before we get too deep into that, I really probably should take a second just to explain what we're talking about today. So there's a bunch of of well-known forms of cybersecurity attacks. Um, Obviously, hacking is the most famous. If you Mm -hmm. go back, you know, God, you know, the folks, Kevin Mitnick back in the 70s, a bunch of other folks using um, actually the Captain Crunch whistle that came in the can't in the cereal um, produced exactly the right tones to break into the AT&T phone system. So Just you could wild. use that to make unlimited international calls. So you begin to see this environment um, emerging and particularly once computers came along, you know, people, the original white hat hackers, this is nerdy stuff. The original white hat hackers simply wanted to know how the systems worked. And they had a very utopian view of the computer industry and computers in general. And they felt it was immoral and unethical for them to be stopped, basically, from understanding how the software worked. That's all they wanted to do. Obviously, as computers became more pervasive and they began holding more important information, less white haddish people kicked in and started trying to steal that. Fast forward three decades or so, and you saw the emergence of this very, um, very specific type of attack in which malware or bad software is inserted into an organization's network, and it encrypts the data that the organization holds. And whenever you try to access that data, a little sign pops up that says, your data is encrypted, we're gonna trash it in 24 hours unless you pay X amount of money. And typically now, uh, folks are demanding payment in cryptocurrency because that's much, 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 much more difficult to trace. Mm -hmm. So the basic idea here is you go into your school district in the morning, you turn on the computers, they all have this warning sign with a countdown timer typically, and a figure which is often in the hundreds of thousands or even millions to get your data back. Mm -hmm. That's ransomware in a nutshell. Yeah, and the thing that is so nefarious about it is that oftentimes it can be planted on your system and left idle for months until they decide to turn it on. And so that piece of having your backups corrupted because the idea is, well, you know, let's just trash the the system reinstall the OS and then mm-hmm. and then restore from our backup and the problem is is that they they take time you know and they don't do it right away so your backups could be corrupted so you you wouldn't know exactly mm-hmm. when that that one piece of software got put on there and or how it did and people gain access to that through social engineering which is the <laughs> most effective way to get access to devices and there was just another breached this last weekend um what was it okta that it does a single sign-on for Mm -hmm. um for companies they got hacked and um and apparently it was a support or a support engineer's computer that was um that they had gotten a hold of somehow uh i believe through social engineering from what i remember i don't have that right in front of me but and let me just let me just throw a quick break in here for a second, because I think it's good to let people know a little bit more about what social engineering is. 
Yeah. So why don't you start and then I'll uh, dive in with you. Yeah. So basically the, the way social engineering works, and this is really, <laughs> this is really frustrating because it's so, you, somebody calls you and pretends to be somebody important that you should give information to, or somebody contacts you and pretends to be someone important. And then they get the information that they need from you based on that, or they can browse your social media sites and get information and basically, it's a really tricky way for someone to to get information about you so that they can then hack into your um, devices and get control of your system. So that's the the very basic understanding of it. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. And and the thing about Mitnick, who's probably the most famous hacker um, <laughs> to no small degree through self-promotion, but, you know, <laughs> he's probably the most famous hacker is that he was brilliant at social engineering. He's written two or three books about his exploits before he went to prison, footnote, um, yeah. that, that help illustrate what a master of psychology he was, you know, that he could pick up the phone and using just a couple of pieces of information, persuade the person on the other end that he was entitled to the information he was asking for. Now, these days, because of the ubiquity of email and things like that, you don't even need to talk to someone on the phone. You just send somebody an email, which is the phishing attack that people have heard about. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're doing it on a broad basis, like to a whole pile of people in a corporation, that's basically phishing. But if they combine it with what you're talking about, then it turns into spear phishing, which is just such a great spin on that whole thing. But uh, spear phishing is an email or other solicitation for information that incorporates specific details about the target. And it's very, very effective if it's done well. Yeah, so let me give an example of how this could work. So um, essentially the, the issue here is that we do things in a systematic way to make our lives easier. And sometimes that systematic way makes it difficult uh, for us to protect ourselves, right? So for example, um, I needed to get a hold of a principal at another school, but I didn't have his direct line, but we needed to talk so that I could explain a student who was moving to his school. So mm -hmm. I called the secretary and said, hey, you've got a student coming. I need the principal to call me back. And she said, well, he's not available and I'll have him call you. He never called me. And it was important for this guy or gal, whoever it ended up being, to know about this kid. And so um, I... I know that secretaries are gatekeepers and my secretary always was also. And so I called the school back and when it got to the, to the recording part and it said, you can put in the person's extension. Then I started putting in extensions just to try to get to the principal. And I got there and got right through to the principal so that I didn't have to wait um, because it was to me that important, but because it was the principal and they're at the top of the food chain, they were their extension number was close to the top. And in another school district I worked at, every principal's extension was exactly the same. It was the three okay. digits of their school plus uh, one zero. And then that was how you got their you got their direct wow. line. Yeah. And wow. so that systematic way, somebody could figure that out very easily and then and then get that information. And so it, all of those things combined work together to make it possible for someone to somehow put ransomware on your computer. It could be as simple as sending an email and having the person open up an attachment or whatever, mm -hmm. or it could be more complex like what we've talked about. And the thing is, is that this is 
so dangerous for schools especially because so much of our systems run on whatever technology we have available. So the power went out at my kid's school last week and we got an email saying nobody could call out of the school. All the phones were down because they were all voice over IP. And because the power was out, they... There was nothing that they could do. They couldn't send emails. They couldn't check their emails. They couldn't do anything because the power was down. And so, unless, of course, the educators had personal devices that were cellular. It, exactly. Then they could which use raises those. all of the other issues that we've talked about. In terms exactly. Of yep. Privacy and blending professional and personal and all the rest. Yep. Of it. So I bring my kids' school up for example because if there was a ransomware attack on my kids' school. Um, or my school district, then all the operations would be shut down. Everything from feeding the kids Mm -hmm. to getting the kids to and from school to the day-to-day work that they're doing, it would be catastrophic. So it really is a big deal when this happens to a school district. And it's more than just not being able to access your devices because all of your student information system is on there, everything. Mm -hmm. And it would just be exceptionally difficult to, to manage the operations of any school once it has been uh, ransomware. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that that is a great point. We're seeing in a bunch of different scenarios how interconnected everything we do is. Mm-hmm. And while that offers amazing efficiencies and opportunities, it also creates vulnerabilities, you know, because as you say, you pull out one piece of that Jenga pile and <laughs> the whole yeah. thing collapse. And, you know, I think what what that underscores is this idea, which we've talked a little bit about, that this interconnectedness means that we're all on the front lines of potential conflicts. You know, obviously, there's a huge amount of cyber activity taking place over in uh, Ukraine um, as part of that assault on that country. But One of the things that um, certainly NATO and the United States have been very concerned about is that kind of attack spreading, Mm -hmm. you know, into other parts of the world. And that's one of the reasons that the government is finally really ramping up its interest in cybersecurity and putting resources in to making these institutions and this infrastructure much safer. And, you know, schools admittedly, are probably a little bit down the food chain, you know, in terms of cybersecurity attention. But I think people do recognize the potential harm to children. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is there is that harm of, you know, education just being stopped. But there's also yeah, yeah. the the reputation that your school is not safe from um, from cybersecurity attacks that you're sure that you could lose a bunch of money that you would have to pay a ton of money to get new devices if that happens. Um, so, you know, the the loss is not just in the downtime or in the the financial aspect, but also, you know, what do you, like having to rebuild everything up again from scratch, not to mention all losing all the data and all the kids' information being leaked because um, that could happen too. And, I mean, there's just a lot that goes into it. Well, absolutely. And even though we're talking about the fact that this is primarily an encryption and locking down situation, the very fact that somebody was able to make an intrusion into your network does raise the possibility that they have 
I love this word, exfiltrated data (laughs) before locking everything down. And if data actually leaves your network in an unsecure fashion, then you're running into the potential for identity theft, invasions of privacy. Uh, One recent attack that I read about this morning, um, they discovered that a whole bunch of detention slips of kids, like 10,000 detention slips over the past how many years, had been stolen and were put on the web. You know, and that that's probably at the end of the day, not, you know, the most dangerous thing, but it could be embarrassing for kids because detention slips will often explain why. Yeah. You know, so that you, you just can't foresee how information will be used once it's lost, which makes, you know, that, that old, well, if you're going to have all of your eggs in one basket, you really need to watch that basket. And that underscores the need for good IT good cybersecurity consultants, ongoing planning. Mm-hmm. And and then doing things to make sure that you are actually protecting yourself and, you know, making, like you mentioned, the audits, but then also making sure that people who have access have the training they need to know how to identify uh, phishing attacks or, or other kinds of information gathering, social engineering things so that they are aware and you also need to do that in an ethical way and we've talked on this program before about how uh, my school district set up a phishing attack on its own people which right. is just not the way to do it that's not how you teach someone by by setting them up um, and playing that role yourself I I think that is unethical and wrong and should not be done so um, so that kind of thing and then also your IT department has to be, very competent and very thorough. And there are a lot of services out there, um, and especially in Alaska, we experience that outsource all their IT mm. to another company um, sure. because you just can't get the technical expertise to do that in-house. And so, you know, if you're in a small village or a rural place, you may not have the expertise in the area because the people who apply for jobs at the school district are those who live in the area. And so if you don't have someone who is proficient at IT infrastructure and prevention of cybersecurity attacks, then you know, you're know you gonna be in a dangerous spot when, when those things do start happening. And a lot of this is so automated that you know they can just go on the website and find an email address and then just start spamming that email address. And you may be rural or maybe a small town and think this won't happen to us, but it very well could just because of what looks easy to those attackers. Yeah, and boy, that that statement raises a whole bunch of interesting threads. Yeah. To throw because, yeah, let's let's start at the end. So you know, we want schools to be trans uh, transparent. We want them to be user friendly for parents for a whole bunch of reasons, but. How many school districts have you visited electronically that have a directory of all of their educators with email addresses, with phone numbers? And that's really a phishing trawler's dream because it's just right there, you know, and there are scripts that you can run that will suck all of that information Mm -hmm. out of the website and dump it into a mailer program and boom, you know, now you're sending out 80 hundred emails trying to get that one person to click on the link that will give you access. Now that's one point. The other point that I, with two other points I thought I'd love to get your thoughts on is 
So you taught in some of those small village schools. And where was your source of information? Was it the state effectively or were there national organizations? So who would you look to to find out who you should hire? Yeah, that's that's a real challenging piece because even the state associations are the thing is is who can who can you hire you can only hire who's there in front of you applying you can do Mm -hmm. nationwide searches which we had done a couple times and found people from across the country and brought them in and that doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be better educated or better prepared for something like this and so one of the big partners in alaska is gci which is a a major um a telecommunications company and we would essentially outsource all the all the Microsoft Exchange server and the mm. the data storage and managing our network and keeping it protected we'd outsource it to them so that the people on the ground at the school were more focused on supporting teachers in their technology use rather than looking at the blinky lights and so that's that's really you, you need nerdy that's a technical people. Term, folks. That's right. You need nerdy people to look at the blinky lights, and you need educator-focused people to help teachers implement technology effectively, train them, help them understand it. And so that's really, and a lot of credit goes to Damon Hargraves in Kodiak District for doing that because he he saw that early on and then helped get our district in a position to where the the right stuff was outsourced to someone who was an expert at it so that we didn't have to worry about it and then we made sure that those boots on the ground were actually helping supporting teachers with their educational technology implementation yeah well and sort of another shout out obviously to keith samudio who i knew really well up in alaska uh, who very much took the same approach the last point i wanted to make on your recent comments though um, deals with the idea of staff training and one of the observations that I think is uh, worth making over and over again is that often the people who have the most powerful access to a network in the school are the ones who may need the training the most. And I refer, of course, (laughs) to principals and vice principals and so forth. And, you know, folks who serve in the role that you have are obviously very busy. They've got a huge number of demands on their time. I think that does make them a little bit more vulnerable to these kinds of attacks, particularly if they're targeted specifically mm-hmm. at them. Yeah, absolutely. And the the need for training is real, but the way that most training is done is just mind-numbingly awful. And most <laughs> people have no idea what any of this stuff is. And so yeah. you have to be a, a real big nerd like I am to understand and get why this is important and why you should pay attention. And the thing is, is that most principals just are not into that and not interested in it. There are certainly some that are, but they really do have a ton of access to all of this information. And sure. Um, and a lot of uh, student information systems are now online. And so they are being held at a location separate from the school district. And so the access is different because you can't, you can't infect the main system by infecting my computer as a principal. And, and there's some benefit to that. So um, yeah, the training is needed. And we had uh, um, Heather Staker, uh, not Heather Staker. I, her name just lo- left me. Heather. 
who who owns the company Drip Seven, who teaches people how to be cyber aware um, in small increments of time rather than in our right. two hour right. long training sessions. Um, that's going to come back to me in just a moment. Well, <laughs> Just search for Drip7 on our website, <laughs> yeah. and it's all good to go. Heather Stratford. So me, there it is. I knew uh, I would get it. Well, well done. So a couple of other things um, that are worth talking about in terms of what schools can do to protect themselves. So you mentioned the potential for long-delayed infection of backups, and that mm-hmm. that's a legitimate problem. That being said, there's still real value to making sure that you have backups that are not attached to your active network. Because if you get an infection or if you get malware and you can show that the backup is not infected, then having an air-gapped, as they say, air-gapped backup will enable you to get back up and running much, much more quickly than if you're stuck in the situation that the only data you have is encrypted by the bad guys. So there's that. And and related to that, I think, is this idea of developing good relationships with law enforcement, Uh, state police, um, FBI, obviously, some of the collaborative uh, task groups that deal with cybersecurity at the state and federal level. There's a ton of them out there now. And the more your school can do or your district or your state department of education to make sure you're interfacing with those folks, the better your response will be. Yeah. And the important thing is, is that there are things that you, you can identify, but you can't do anything about as a school. And that's where having a relationship with law enforcement, where they can then get a warrant and find out where that IP address is and, um, and who could possibly be doing that and, you know, at the very least have an idea of the zone that the person is in, you know, a regional area where you could see where these things are coming from. And the very other real thing is that this stuff can happen um, from students within your own school. And <laughs> those little buggers. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that is not really malicious. It's just kids playing around and trying to figure out what they can get through. And, you know, we've talked about a lot with filters and stuff at schools that kids will always find a backdoor or a way to get around something. And it's very difficult to ever keep them contained. But, you know, rather than say you're a horrible person and you're in trouble, you should take advantage of what they know and work with them to see how you can make your system stronger. And that is a great learning opportunity and a great opportunity to get kids moving in the right direction with mm-hmm. some of this stuff. Um, the uh, the Air Force puts on a thing called Cyber Patriot, which essentially teaches kids how to be white hat hackers. And uh, yeah, and um, we've talked about that a couple times. And it's a really great program to to get kids knowledgeable about it. And honestly, I think that is one of the best ways to uh, to have them be smarter about it by participating in that kind of stuff because it's much more interesting when you can see what other people can do and and you can see how they do it and then you can then be smarter about the things that you do that's that's brilliant i think that you know anytime you can take some activity by a kid and turn it into a force for good 
Yeah. It, that's that's sort of the height of the pedagogical goal. That's there. right. Yeah. You know, you know really. Um, and it's just such a much more constructive approach. But I would hope that the takeaway people would have on this is that if we've got a multi-billion dollar problem, which we clearly do. Yep. I mean, you know, there's we'll get to the last piece, which is the level of reporting, but even the reported ransomware in schools is just under a billion dollars. And most people think that's probably only about 20 to 25% of the actual incidents yeah. out there. So we're talking a huge issue. And that to me, as you know, someone who's in and around education, screams out for the need to get kids involved in cybersecurity in terms of job training and potential careers. There is a huge opportunity here for schools to really give kids a, a wonderful path to follow yeah and do social good like help protect us this stuff isn't going away yeah exactly um so in one district i worked at we had hired a student um at once he became an adult into the it department and everybody loved this kid because they'd seen him grow up they'd seen him mature and become a, a good decent human being and then he continued to gain responsibility within the it department and everybody just loved him because they saw that he was like really there trying to, and he was definitely one of the blinky lights guys, super nerd. And it's great <laughs> because he would, he would identify where we were having problems. And it was so fascinating to watch these teachers who had taught him now go to him for advice and say, what do I do with this? How do I protect myself? And they, it was so fascinating because it was, they were so much more comfortable talking to him than anybody else because they already had a relationship, they knew who he was, and they knew that he was never going to make them feel dumb, even though uh, most would say he was a lot smarter than almost everybody in the district. And he just was this great young man who turned into this awesome advocate for cybersecurity in our school district. And really, I think that relationship helped a lot of things. Um, so how much should schools share with the public? This is this is well, I was, a tough I was question, right? <laughs> so bad news comes across your desk, Jethro. How quickly are you throwing it out to parents? Oh, yeah, I'm I'm hiding it as much as I can because you don't want to share anything negative that happens at your school. Certainly not publicly. You don't want these things to get out because all it does, you think, is make you look bad. And that is a is an assumption that most school leaders make, and that's not really the right way to do it. When these things happen, you do want to talk about it and you want to say, here's here's why we need to be more aware and pay better attention. And the reality is, is a lot of people don't want to report it because it's embarrassing and you look like mm -hmm. a failure and and that's <laughs> just the reality. And But the thing is, is these are happening all the time and we need to make sure that we are letting people know that they're happening, if for no other reason than to make sure people are paying attention and saying, if you think it can't happen here, you're wrong. It definitely can happen here. That's that's a great point. I mean, look the the issue of of reporting and telling parents about what's going on um, is not a choice that all schools have. Obviously, right. I mean, if if the bad guys have encrypted all of your data and you can't feed the kids and you can't do any of the things the school needs to do. Well, the parents are going to find out about yeah. that pretty quickly. <laughs> I guess the, the thing that is critical in all of this from a practical perspective is that schools should have a plan in place 
for how they're going to handle these kinds of situations. I remember back when I was on the Burlington School Board, we periodically would go over the crisis response plan. You needed to have one. It could be any number of things, obviously, from a school shooting to an accident to some kind of computer breach. And by thinking about this stuff ahead of time, then people don't have to make as emotional judgments. They just follow the checklist. Yeah. And and this is where having a plan is so vital. Even though, to be honest, having a plan always frustrates me because nothing ever goes according to plan, right? So it's all well and good, but nothing goes according to plan. But having a plan in place gives you some confidence in being able to deal with whatever does happen. So it's worth it to do it, and it's worth it to be talking about it. And I think the other piece here is that you need to be able to communicate effectively and quickly when something does happen, especially in defining the scope of what has actually happened. So if it is a, you know, somebody hacked in and now has possession of username and passwords, you need to be able to get that out to teachers quickly and say, everybody change your password. Um, Mm -hmm. My kids' schools were recently... Um, sent these job offers in an email and every kid got an, a job offer. And uh, I don't know how that all happened, but we didn't hear about it until our kids already came home and told us. And, uh, and that is a situation where as much as possible, you don't want the kids to be explaining what's going on. And no, I, it's rarely a good thing, right? They don't get all the details, right? So, so I can just hear you asking, where did this paycheck come from? (laughs) Wait, you have a job now? What? Yeah. (laughs) So so it is important to communicate quickly, effectively, and thoroughly so that parents know what is going on. And, you know, my older daughter was able to say, yeah, everybody got those. It's, It's a spam or it's a phishing attack or something like that. And you shouldn't click on, open it or click on the link. And right. so she was good. able to say that and that's good. But my, but my younger son came home and he was like, dad, I got a job offer today. <laughs> and he had a much different approach than my daughter did. Well, and a couple of different points. Number one, you know, and it's so critical for kids and adults to understand this. You don't know what's behind that link. Right. You know, because there's all different kinds of ways to redirect. So they could have wound up on a porn site. They could have you know, downloaded malware, all of those possibilities. So there's that. The other thing that I think is important in this conversation, and it runs through everything we've been talking today, is the idea of redundancy, Mm -hmm. right? Having a non-electronic means of communicating with parents, whether, you know, for instance, you could use some kind of mobile texting service that is independent of your network, so that if your system goes down, what if you can't email the parents? Yeah. You know, what's your effective way of communicating with your school community? And, yeah. and there are a bunch of different options, but but that's part of this response plan, right? You need to be able to implement something like that if things really go south. Yeah. And then the last point that I'd make is that having that transparency around what is happening defines a scope of the problem and what other risk factors we need to pay attention to. And this I think is just so important because if 
if it is a an isolated incident and you can identify what that is, then not everybody needs to freak out about it. But if it is something else and you don't know what it is, then and you don't share what it is, then everybody does freak out and think that bigger things are happening when they're not really happening. And <laughs> and this is one of those little things that makes a big difference, having that transparency and saying, here's what we know, here's how it happened. It was because somebody responded to a phishing attack, so we need to increase our training on phishing attacks. And yeah. that will prevent the same exact thing from happening, but we just need to be more cyber aware in general. So we're going to add in additional pieces to that so that it's more than just a phishing attack you're learning how to prevent it's social engineering and everything else and bringing all of that together so that we're, the awareness is is more prevalent yeah well I, i'm really excited that we're starting to see finally some really well organized responses mm-hmm. to the cybersecurity needs of schools because you know as, as you correctly pointed out We've got schools of every size in this country, and it's one thing for Broward County or some of the school districts down in Texas, which are basically the size of you know Vermont yeah. you know, in terms of who they can hire and so forth. But you know, for the school district that I grew up in, or even Burlington with its, you know, we had how many people in the IT department? Maybe three. Yeah. You know, max. You know, it's just not that big. And so you need those layers, federal, state, school district, all working together to provide the information to make these systems safe. And, you know, I I think, as you know, I've been kind of in the weeds of conspiracy theories uh, for the (laughs) last few months. And your point about transparency serves a broader social purpose, Mm -hmm. which is to say that if people in authority who are confronted with difficult situations are transparent and thorough in what they say to the public, then that cuts down on the random speculation. Yeah. It's an important thing. It yeah. really is. And that builds trust, that builds confidence. And we immediately think that if anybody sees us doing anything that's not perfect, then they're going to judge us. And the reality is we all make mistakes. And if we own up to and address those mistakes head on, then it increases trust and confidence in that person to lead us through something difficult. And that's what we want to be as school leaders, for sure. Good words to end on there, Jethro. (laughs) Coming from a school leader. That's excellent. (laughs) All righty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, crisis response, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have a question, topic, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention 
meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.